0: Salt force one a podcast where we talk all things navy military and other global happenings i am your commander in chief frank
1: i am the salty millennial
0: and who do we got on the line today
1: with us today we have uh, retired commander guy snodgrass uh callsign bus and the author of uh, the newly released book holding the line inside trump's pentagon with secretary mattis so uh bus do you have do you have you yeah, you sure do. Thanks Great. for having me, guys. Yeah. To be with you. I'm glad glad you're with us. Thanks for having thanks for coming on uh, Salt Force One. So uh, the the book came out a couple of days ago. It's been all over Twitter, and uh, you've been all over the news. Tell us what's it's been what's it been like since the uh, book rollout began.
2: You know, it's been fast and furious, and it's interesting. It reminds me of a lot of what I learned from my own commanding officers along the way, right? Which is uh, just the importance of being humble, uh, having humility, because you realize this is kind of a flavor of the moment, but uh, While well, it's an honor to be out there sharing this experience and talking about it and what I learned behind the scenes that I think are important lessons for members of the military and for Americans to, to have access to and to understand because it's kind of an urgent period of time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as, as we all feel. But you can never lose sight of the fact that, again, it's kind of the flavor of the moment and this too shall fade. So just make sure you always operate, you know, with ethical and uh, considerations in mind and just don't do anything that would be silly.
0: Yeah. And I know you got, I uh, probably have more shows lined up uh after this and you want to have more uh how how happy are you so far with the reception with the i don't know how how people are picking it up it seems like a lot of people are latching on to things like the uh, the military parade and stuff like that
2: so i'm very pleased with the reception you know we could have probably an hour-long conversation just on the topic of how how do you create a strategy and how do you execute a strategy i would tell you that it was not lost on me when i was writing this book look i I've had a two-decade career in the Navy. I was a commanding officer. And that as you gain that experience and exposure to other senior leaders, it changes how you approach things. So I knew when I wrote this book that it was going to – it ran a high risk, certainly, of being contentious. And I knew that members of the military would debate whether it was the right decision to share this experience or whether I'd gone a step too far. And, again, all along I just want to make sure that the book was written in an apolitical sense. I didn't need to contribute to any of the hot political rhetoric. wanted to make sure that the way I treated my experience and the people I worked with was through the lens of history. So you captured the things that will stand the test of time, but also with a lot of respect. And I'm glad to see that although it was difficult to get it through the Pentagon, certainly Secretary Mattis did not want to see this come out, and I can – Understand his perspective, but I've been very pleased that people from inside the Pentagon have reached out to say We're really glad you're willing to tell our story and a lot of people who I've known for years throughout the fleet Even new people have reached out to say we're really glad you did this and that you did it honorably Which Yeah, is important to me.
1: no, I I, I I, so we read the book um, And I'll tell you first of all fantastic. I recommend it. You, should, you know, people should go out and buy the book um, Read it. Uh, I can understand the debate. I, I'll be honest with you um, I, I I'm not sure that I would, if I were in your position. I'm just, you know, being fair and honest. I'm not sure I would write the book. Um, you know, I for one, I'm 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 floored that they didn't have you
2: sign a non-disclosure agreement. Um, but uh, oh, they do, they do yeah. have you sign one. But okay. it's it's the standard, you know, if you if you have a top secret or okay. sensitive compartmentalized information, you know, you sign that. And of course, you know, this is getting back to you got to know the rules and regulations. Gotcha. And this is the stuff that I didn't learn until I was probably more senior, like a DH and beyond, which is. Uh, excuse me, department head and beyond, which is, you know, it's always in your favor to understand what the rules and regulations are that, that buy anything. But to your point, while I can certainly write a book that's unclassified, I get your point, which is, man, you know, is it really, whether or not you can do it, should you do
1: it? And yeah. I understand why you're saying well, that. And I, uh, you know, it's just a debate that we should have. And, uh, and I wanted, that's part of what, uh, we wanted to have you on here today. You know, it's contentious. We like that. Hell, I mean, this is the salty millennial, you know, we, we play in that every day. <laughs> so, um, We want to hear about it. And I don't think that, you know, there's this impression that, like, I I even got warned, like, I shouldn't talk to you. Like, that's crazy. Is (laughs) that right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm allowed to talk to this guy. Persona (laughs) downcrata. Yeah, right. So I'm going to talk to you, and we're going to talk about the book. But, you know, so I was going to mention that we we read it. Uh, One person that apparently has not read it is um, James Mattis. Um, His comments have been less than um, warm uh, (laughs) uh, to you, saying, you know, you – now I know this has been his his staff has said this and there there are uh, characters in the book like Dana White um, that uh, said you know sacrificing your honor and, and, so, and so forth uh, I think that's pretty going a little too far but uh, I'd like to hear so have any of them reached out to you personally or is this all been playing out in the press?
2: It's all been playing out in the press and again there's so many rabbit holes we could go down as we talk yeah. about this uh, as a as the guy like one let's just pause for one second and just say, You know, when I was a kid growing up and you saw I I would watch the Navy commercials. It was like Navy, accelerate your life or join the Navy, see the world. It's like just think for a second about a two decade career where I could be a very deep engineering scientist background, become a fighter pilot and a top gun instructor. Then you go and you get to be a speechwriter for the CNO. Then you get to go be a, a commanding officer in Japan and then come back and be the communications director for the secretary of defense. Talk about just I know that, in fact, I had a hand in some of the retention studies and, and finding ways to improve talent management, improve retention. But, man, talk about a phenomenal career path in the Navy where you can, whether you're officer or enlisted, you have some flexibility and freedom. To just be incredibly broad, have such great experiences. So yeah. if you, you know, that's my that's my pitch for the U.S. Navy, right there. So yeah, no, that's if, a... if you, you know, if you take advantage of it, there's a lot of great opportunities out there, especially if you're willing to work hard. To go man, after sign sign to me your, up. To, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you're already on the path, man. Uh, well. So as you think about uh, what you just asked me, look, it, it's tough, and I stand certainly behind everything in the book. I wouldn't put something in the book if I didn't believe that I could back it up, uh, and of course. To some of the points about uh, we can go down rabbit holes. There's this interesting element, and I've felt this previously in my career, where suddenly you feel like you're the su- you're the subject of something and you're under scrutiny, and so you you feel this urge you got to respond, and yeah. that's the danger from a strategic communication standpoint and from a strategy standpoint. You know, Secretary Mattis uh, responded, and it was put out by his scheduler. But uh, so he put it out through his scheduler, and it's one of those things where. That drew a lot of interest to the book or if you, as you mentioned, Dana White and others have said, Oh my gosh, I can't believe it, it inadvertently calls more attention to the book, not Mm -hmm. less. And so it's an interesting point because they, no one probably would have thought twice about it until they raise it. So again, there's a lot of just interesting lessons about how do you communicate strategically that uh, again, that would be a separate conversation, but it, while, while what I heard wasn't something that bothered me, I, 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 could expect people to be concerned if they find themselves on the pages of a book that came out. Yeah. Uh, I do stand behind what I said previously this week, which was, I do believe deeply that secretary Mattis in this case can't define my own honor, integrity, or my character. Of course, that's something we've learned from the day we put on the uniform that not only you, you define it for yourself, but it's about doing the right thing, regardless of the consequences. It's not just when the political wins are in your favor. And that's why I feel very comfortable with this book.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's good stuff. Hey, um, you you mentioned retention, and I was going to ask you about your uh, white paper. Sure. Uh, you know, just very briefly, because uh, you know this uh, this paper you wrote, uh, Keeper Weather Eye on the Horizon, is sort of that's uh, when I first learned of uh, of you. Uh, I, I mean, the paper kind of uh, kind of made you Navy famous in a way. You know, I mean, you you it really almost went viral inside the Lifelines, and uh, and I was curious if that paper. Put you on a path that ended with uh, being the speechwriter for Secretary Mattis. I mean, did it play a part? Uh, you mentioned that you were uh, CNO speechwriter uh, in the interim, but uh, you know, was that something that affected uh, how you ended up uh, with your career path?
2: I can't say whether it did or didn't. In fact, it's interesting. Just like with the book now, I think there's always this element. Uh, you know, when you're just a normal person, right? Like you're a human being. You're watching stuff, and if it has like this feeling of ooh, I can't believe that guy or this gal just did that. And it's like, I want to learn more. And I, that's the only thing I can think of with the paper because I, just to give you a quick background, I had written this paper. I was very passionate about talent management and retention. I had some friends in Millington, of course our home for human resources in the U.S. Navy, who had been expressing with, to me for quite some time, oh my gosh, the retention indicators are going south in a hurry. The economy's good. Uh, There's a lot of hardships and challenges, not only for the service members in the Navy, but certainly their families. So we're seeing these indicators say that a lot of people are going to start leaving, especially in some of the tough billets, for example, uh, certain parts of Naval Aviation or Navy SEALs and others. And no one's doing anything about it. They haven't even acknowledged the problem. So I did a lot of research. Long story short, it felt like there was this interesting formula where if you take something like talent management, of course, where people are naturally interested and and they're passionate about the topic, so they're ready to hear about it if you underpin it with a lot of facts and data to make sure that it's accurate and you're not just using hyperbole. But if you can take those two elements and now you can wrap it in a compelling narrative, you know, you can write it in a way that people find engaging and they want to pick up, then you're going to have a lot more success. And that's the same same approach I had for the 2018 National Defense Strategy that got released publicly yeah. because it, it wasn't something that was supposed to be a sleepy document that just sits on a shelf. We wanted to actually change the way... Yeah. Americans and others saw the world. So, can it, did the white paper launch my current, you know, uh, place in life? I, I don't think that it did, but I certainly believe that it got some attention. Yeah,
1: it was well written, and that and it had life, just like the NDS. You know, it had a voice, and uh, if you if you write well, then uh, people will read it.
0: Hey, and five years after the fact, um, do you have any thoughts on the current situation of retention rates? <laughs> All right, so, wait, so we're going to take that offline because uh, I, I do. I do. I've been <laughs> instructed.
1: Uh, I've been told there's no retention problem in the Navy right now. So, uh, <laughs> hey, let me, if you don't
2: mind, let me just save five seconds on that. And that is simply this: uh, I'm I'm honored and pleased. I'm working on a book right now for the U.S. Naval Institute that's going to be. They got this thing called a will book series. They they study topics like leadership or. Uh, seamanship, you know, and then they kind of collapse all these really good articles throughout history into a, a book that someone edits. And so they asked me about a year ago to, to put one together that's going to be about talent management and retention uh, and, yes. and manpower. But what that gave me an opportunity to do was look back through the pages of Proceedings Magazine and find where you're not just talking like five years, 10 years, you're talking decades worth of people who have been examining talent management, have, have been examining manpower, on both the officer and listed side, what role that uh, working spouses play all these different factors. So while it it always feels new and fresh, I think it's because it's a perennial issue that people are interested in. And it's something that we should remain vigilant about. You want to make the best experience for the service member.
1: Well, I want to, I definitely, you and I, I I would love to talk about this uh, offline, but remaining vigilant. And that's like, like, that's I think the point and to be able to question these things and then, and be corrected if you're wrong, but to, but you have to ask the question. You can't ignore the problem or you can't, if, if there is no problem, good, you but find that out too? you can't be barred from asking the question. Um, and, uh, and so anyway, so it's well, been say, real interesting. Quick on that point, yeah,
2: that's a great point you just made, Zalti, and that is this: uh, nothing I believe is more damaging to an organization than if you are either a unwilling to look for problems, right? You want to sweep them under the rug because then everyone knows they exist. They just believe that senior leaders are. Are not willing to touch it, and that's that's just bad for morale, and it's yeah. bad for spirit and yeah. core because you feel like you're part of a losing organization, and it festers. You know, profet- yeah, professionals invite scrutiny. So you always want to sit there and say, hey, let's not just say we're the best organization. Let's actually do things yes. underneath the scenes to make sure we really are living up to our own height. Absolutely.
0: And so, even though he forgot to say at the beginning of this show, you can't call him Jimmy, although it's fun to call him salty. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no yep, yep, not, not hiding. Okay, so, hey, we have so much I want
1: to ask you. All right, let's get into the book. Um Let's talk about the Navy. And this is a, a Navy podcast. So um, I want to hear a little bit about uh, Mattis. So in your time with Mattis as the secretary, you know, and his relationship with the Navy, y- you mentioned uh, he was fond of Admiral Richardson, the CNO, during the time, uh, but did not recommend him uh, for the chairman job. Uh, you referenced the 2017 collisions, a huge part of uh, our com- uh, sw- surface warfare community and the Navy at, at large. I mean, that's a big reason why I'm even doing this today. Um was that the reason he gave Richardson? Did was that a conversation that happened?
2: I want to be really clear and that whether it's the book or in any conversation or interview I've been doing, I always want to make sure that I'm uh, very forthright. That I I won't speculate. Okay, I'm happy yeah. to share what I'm aware of. Yeah, I'm aware of conversations I've had with Admiral Richardson about this topic, and okay. also what I have heard and seen from Secretary Mattis behind closed doors. So, no, I, I was not in a room, for example, when Mattis told Richardson, hey, I'm, I'm not going to do it and here's why. Okay. What I will tell you, though, is from all the time I spent, you know, a year and a half working alongside Secretary Mattis in his front office and all these meetings flying across the globe, you learn pretty quick. And it's an interesting lesson of how things change from when you're either a junior enlisted, a junior officer, and then as you gain seniority because – there's a great book out there called What Got You Here Won't okay. Get You There. Okay. And I think that's so apropos for this kind of like topic you just asked because it doesn't, up until the point you're about in 05-06, it really is. It's performance. It's how do you, how do your fit reps look and how do you rack and stack against the person to your left, the person to your right as you go into a selection board? As you get into those senior ranks, as you get into Navy captain in our case, or as you get into Admiral and Beyond, there's a lot of politics at play and, and yeah. I do know that Having had the ship collisions, there were some other things occurring in the Navy. We had the physiological episodes for the aviation community. You had the USS Ford with the setbacks and the cost overruns. There were a lot of things that somewhat highlighted the Navy as it wasn't the most... Um, yeah, no, wait, we weren't firing it all yeah. on and, cylinders. And here's and you got to draw it one line further, which is just imagine if you took that background, unfortunate as it is for Admiral Richardson, but if you took that background and that and what's on the public record, and now you put him in front of Congress and try to get him confirmed as as chairman, for example, then it's just going to be an uphill battle there's because there's lot, just too yeah. much there. Yeah.
1: Well, and you know, it's not that I I necessarily hold one man accountable, but we we hold our leaders accountable, right? That's that's what we we do as a professional military organization. Um, we should all be accountable for these things. But uh, the 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 impression that I got, not not just from him, and I never met the man. But public comments uh, from him and others uh, was a sort of a downplaying of these events and the, the, um, that it wasn't necessarily something that um, was systemic throughout the Navy and uh, regard, you know, it wasn't a systemic problem. These were more individual problems that uh, were occurring intermittently. And um, it just it wasn't exactly the tone I would expect from somebody who wanted to embrace uh, the state of where we were and say, OK, we're going to get better. You know, we're. Uh, we're professional, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna move forward, but we're gonna embrace what we what we know to be problems, and and, and go forward uh, unapologetically. You know, open kimono, and I just I don't right. know the right. tone. I, I didn't so anyway. I'm, I'm I'm editorializing here, and I I, I want to ask you questions, but the uh, the relationship with the the Navy, um, you know, from Mattis's perspective, and also you know from uh, other people in DC, Congress, the White House that you, you may have been part of. You know, did. Did 2017 have a as a, a damaging impact on on their view of the Navy as an organization, or is it, you know, something that we see internally and we want to get better, or is it something that, that from your perspective, they, did they also view it that way?
2: Well, you could say it's maybe both, right? So yes, it was a very uh, it was a very public and very just. Um, I'm trying to think of the right word. I mean, it was it was devastating, yeah. right? You lose 17 sailors across two ship collisions with the McCain and the Fitzgerald. And, I mean, these sailors lost their lives. And, and by all accounts, as you read, I, I remember reading the ProPublica kind of, they, they did a really just, they brought you into that scene, yeah. and it was jarring. I mean, it was like, wow. Uh, they, they really brought it to life, which just made me reflect on the fact that this didn't have to happen you know this is this is standard operations if you're on a ship and that's why i think people were really worried but i wouldn't say you could hang the Navy's, you know whether the stock is up or stock is down on simply those two collisions i think having those two collisions back to back like i mentioned there were some other headwinds that the navy has been facing there have been some communities that have come under fire for various reasons and and it's interesting because when you've had a chance to be behind the scenes right and you're and it's not even that Mattis is telling me these things, it's just you're now in these political waters and you can actually see them moving, right? So you're like this one ship amongst many that are bobbing on the waves and you can get the sense that, oh man, the Air Force in this case, like with General Golding and uh, Secretary Heather Wilson, I mean, they were kind of firing on all cylinders. They're you know, they're when when Mattis says I want to cut back on the bureaucratic red tape and I wanna get rid of as much of the GMT requirements as we can, we want to focus on war fighting, not on administrivia and we all said amen and of course the air force man it was like a week later she came back and said mr secretary we've already reduced it by 50 percent." that's yeah. impressive so you just get this sense of kind of like hey some services are moving forward some services are kind of shuffling sideways or back so i think the navy of course writ large is in a great position it is a maritime century we have a lot of concerns in the indo-pacific and other things we need to be worried about and Look, America is a globally distributed nation. In some respects, we have we have interests around the world, and, and yeah. one of the most effective ways to handle that is with sea power.
1: Yeah, and we're we're a mercantile republic. I mean, we depend on that. And you know, I agree. It's a, it's a maritime century, and uh, the stakes are high. Um, I'm not uh, not convinced we are where we need to be. Um, there's report after report that uh, you know our grades are more like a. Uh, marginal. In fact, that one just came out from, right. uh, you know, marginal grades. And, you know, we, we know we need Which to, was an improvement. Uh, apparently. But uh, uh, we're, we're, we're getting better. Sure. It, we're getting better. But we know the stakes are, are very high. We've got China, Russia. Of course, we've got all of the different conflicts in the Middle East. But, uh, you know, we, we've we got more threats than we can count. And uh, we've got to be ready for all of them. And the Navy is going to play a, a huge part in that. So, you know, I, what, I, what, yeah, Real yeah. quick, if you don't mind, just...
2: Uh, uh, James, real quick, just I just want to make a point there because think about this for a second, just how difficult that communication problem is. Where, on the one hand, a lot of people and senior leaders, of course, believe what Secretary Mass and others have said, which is we don't ever talk about our readiness in a public forum because you don't mm. want to really show your cards, whether they're great cards or, or bad cards. You just don't want to talk about it because you don't want to inadvertently hold your yeah. adversary your, they, or, or your I enemy. Mean, on the other hand, you, you also say, well, Hang on a second. If there's actually things like you just pointed out, we need to get after and work on. Then how do you commu- how do you communicate that to Congress, or how do you communicate it in a way publicly so that people say, "Yeah, we need to give you more money" or change the resourcing so yes. you can actually improve. So right. it's, it's a it's a challenging problem. Uh, that I think people need to spend a little bit more time thinking about how they do that effectively.
1: Well, and you're right, and it's about communicating effectively as an organization, not just as a figurehead, not just as the leader, right. but everybody. And Because they don't own that communication. You can go on Twitter any day of the week, and you can see sailors and soldiers making comments, and you can put it all together, and our adversaries do this, and they can get a picture without with the secretary saying one
0: word. And the unfortunate reality is that uh, Congress is not going to get moving if it's not going to give any votes, you know. Yeah. Like uh, it's like we need more money. It's like uh eh, that doesn't sound like a fancy program. Yeah.
1: So anyway, so it's a uh, it's getting better. That I'll I'll leave it at that. I, I did want to ask about uh, some things that you you reference in your book with uh, meetings with uh, President Trump. You know, I, I he he made a comment um, something to the effect of the next time that Iranian boats uh, harass one of our ships, I want the captain. So blow him out of the water. And um, I don't think he said that behind closed doors, but uh, he said things like that in public before. Uh, if he said it, it's, if it's guidance, it's uh, that would be contrary to what the current rules of engagement are for international waters. Uh, and I'm interested in that because I'm interested in this whole thing where, you know, the president tweets or says something in a speech and it seems to be kind of contradictory to what our current military guidance is. Uh, it's, it's in his purview, right? He's the commander in chief. This is where you and I split a lot. Yeah, I know. But I think it's a fascinating topic, right? So it's, he's the commander-in-chief. He says something, it goes. Maybe it's not a direct order, but I'm hearing it, right. and um, i got to interpret it some way. Um, and I'm, that, that's to me, that has a concerning effect on the civilian-led military structure, especially when some of the senior leaders uh, slow roll those com- the, the, the initiative that he's rolling out. Or just ignore it completely. I mean, we we I read that in the book. You know, some yeah. of that some of that happens. And I'm curious, you know, do you see that as the problem that I see it as, or do you see it as the pro- the process is, is working effectively um, to maybe moderate some of the president's um, in- instincts? I'm I'm just I'm curious what your your thoughts on that. Um, you know, for using the example of hey, the next time they harass us, blow them out of the water.
2: Well, you're right. I mean, there's there certainly is a difference between public and private comments, so that's point number one. Point number two, though, is I do see it as a large problem. If you think about the, what I believe is a major, significant departure that tre- President Trump has had from most every other president before him is that President Trump is not as concerned about communicating, in this case, through Twitter or through television other other avenues directly to the American public and largely direct, directly to his constituents. Yeah. Now, that puts you in a bind because, as a lot of us know, right, so when you're coming up as a leader in the Navy, whether you're an officer enlisted, doesn't matter. I mean, you realize pretty quick that it's part of your job is to avoid the appearance of impropriety. It's not just that it's legally accurate or ethically accurate. you got to make sure that it doesn't—it couldn't even be misconstrued as being legally or ethically challenged. So that's one yeah. part because when he sometimes will—the uh, president will send out a spurious real quick tweet, it—, it I believe it puts a little bit more jeopardy on things that are going on. And and but when you realize what he's doing, right, he's a Mattis himself would, would tell us he, he believes that Trump is a shrewd politician, that he has a great sense for kind of how the political waters are moving. And so he'll respond and he'll respond immediately. So I don't think that as members of the military or the American public, you can take those things at pure face value because. Uh, you know, he. I remember he had the statement. And he also tweeted about you know, Rocket Man from North Korea, it's <laughs> Fire and Fury. And we're going to like blow your whole country up, and you might see that. And of course, if you said James like you did, where hey, you know, he he says this, and so now you, yeah, you go, you got to react. <laughs> Fires and missiles. Like, yeah, exactly. So it's like, well, no, that's not the case. So you have to. Yeah. That, but that makes it tough. If you're a follower, if you're a leader, it feels pretty good. And the way I've characterized it recently is, it's a little bit like. Pulling out your pistol from its holster and blowing a hole in your foot because you aren't giving your teams any heads up of what you're going to say. You could say, "Hey, you're about to see something come out. Just realize I'm talking to the base. Don't react." And it's like, "Okay, yeah. got it. Thanks for the heads up." But when you don't get that warning, like we did with the transgender tweet, right? The creation of the space force, right? Or the we're <laughs> stepping out of military exercises with North Korea. Yes, or, I'm sorry, with South <laughs> Korea. Or you know, it's like this and yeah. this and this, and then you find that what you really are doing is you're reducing the. Ability of those you lead to be effective.
1: Yeah, that's because that's the part where it's dangerous. That's not rhetoric. That's him telling the department to do something. I feel so like there's, improved, there's fire and fury though. is rhetoric. Please don't fire on North Korea right now. I'm saying it, but don't do it. Mm. And that's, that's fine. I mean, I get rhetoric, but he also does the things on the other side where he says, and he looks around for General Dunford and says, please go execute this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and he's like expecting a response from General Dunford standing right next to him. You know, so that's an order. Um, it's it's interesting, yeah. <laughs> uh, and he also has said things like, you know, the troops down on the border that he sent down there. If a migrant throws a rock at him, I expect them to fire back. Like, well, you know, that's not. The, I think rubber they,
0: bullets would be okay. But, so,
1: <laughs> point being, he's not. He has not given the, right. the rules of engagement to allow them to do that. Right. He could, I, I guess, um, but he hasn't. So there's a little. There's there's some there's a. An internal strain there, you know, and you go, well, what do I do?
0: Well, you know, after uh, after we took out old all uh, ISIS boy the other day, uh, somebody was giving a speech and they they said, well, you know, this uh, credits uh, the president for putting more, I guess, uh, I guess movements on the ground in the hands of the the generals and everybody else, and less yeah, and, delegating, authority to yeah, delegate, delegating authority. Yeah, delegating authority. Where he he has less control by choice over military action. I, do you hey, I, I wonder um if there's anything noticeable under this administration that you've seen where uh, he actually does get involved less in the day-to-day with the military than other presidents, but, uh, but beyond that, I wonder if that I wonder if he speaks more freely because he already thinks he delegated stuff away or is like, I don't know, I can say whatever I want. They can do whatever they would want. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, I certainly, I don't have
2: the behind-the-scenes insight to previous presidents, so right. I don't want to kind of, I don't want to make a comparison of current day to previous administrations. Sure. But I do believe he's been, throughout the course of his tenure in office, fairly hands-off with the military. And I can say, right, so there, there's this element that's interesting of how the national discourse moves. When the book was released, it, I think it was largely seen as critical of the president. Well, look, so you both said you've read the book. There's a lot of things in the book where it's like, Take a look. We restored, excuse me, restored a budget for the for the military, a stable yeah. budget. Mm-hmm. We brought ISIS, or we accelerated the campaign to annihilate ISIS, and we largely brought them, at least the physical caliphate, down to its knees. That's a that's a positive. You've got the rebuilding America's military and the investments that we're putting into programs. So there's a lot of things that have occurred. The, the release of a national defense strategy, of course, is huge for yeah. the first time in a decade. So there's all these things mm-hmm. that are positive. But I think if you go back to what we were just talking about about the way you communicate. You can be any leader. So this is not specific to President Trump. This is basically for any senior leader. But you you realize pretty quick that it's just not about you. Right. So you it's about your organization. It's about servant leadership. So how do you behave as a leader to make to make it as clear as possible, as easy as possible for your subordinates to carry out the roles, missions, responsibilities that they have? on either your behalf as, as the head of the organization or for the organization. But that's where I think that there, would, there should have just been some kind of opportunity for some recorrection to say, wow, these tweets or other things are having a, it, it makes it challenging for others to do their jobs. So, hey, we'll temper this back and we'll make sure that things are maybe a little bit more vetted and, and consistent so you can discern, is this a policy announcement or is this simply political?
1: No, absolutely. Uh, bus, how how well do you think Mattis did uh, as secretary with what you just said? It's not about you know not about you personally, and then the effective communication. And we were talking about Trump, but I'm curious. Uh, apply that to Secretary Mattis, and 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 I and I, and I agree. you know read read the book. Uh, you maintain a, an even tone throughout the book, which I thought was impressive. Right. Uh, you didn't you didn't go too far one way or another either politically or in terms of um, uh, describing the character uh, or just the the, the events and the, of the and the people that are involved I' would say character um, you, yeah, you yeah kept
0: glowing on mattis for the most part
1: yeah I know I mean it's, it's very fair um, so so I'm, that's why I'm asking because I'm really curious what your thoughts are on his you know as as a secretary not as a general because There's no debate there (laughs) as a general. I mean, he could have been a five-star general. Um, But as a secretary of defense, was he an effective uh, leader and communicator?
2: So I'm going to say, while I appreciate the opportunity, I think we need a little bit more time to look back through the lens of history, right? To actually kind of weigh and measure his tenure in office against the previous 25 secretaries. But there are things, as you've read in the book, right? There are data points that people can mull over I covered the civilian-military relationship piece and how we were a very military-centric front office, and that had very real ramifications for the Pentagon. I mean, the way that we operated, yeah. the way that op tempo—it was very—it was seen across the building as exhausting.
1: Pentacom. and <laughs> while
2: while there are a lot of people who obviously uh, they respect Mattis, they in some cases idolize Mattis, but there's no two ways about it that uh, anybody I'd talk to, whether you loved him or you you thought, eh, he's okay, they would still say it was an exhausting period of time. And they were somewhat glad when you had maybe kind of some more normalcy brought in. So that's one element. You've got an entire chapter called Bulletproof that basically walks you through our relationship with the media. And this gets right to the heart of your question about, you know, effective communication. And one of the things I highlight was just the danger of, when you work for a boss who wants to be in the limelight, to be the president of the United States, yeah, you realize pretty quickly that if you get out in front of your boss, you're especially publicly, if you say something he disagrees with, he will Run you correct over. you publicly, and it will make you, especially in the Washington, D.C. kind of circles, it will make you look like you've been diminished. People will start to chatter about that. That reduces your effectiveness. Yeah. Mattis' answer to this was simply, let's minimize contact with the press because that way there's less risk. And especially... Minimize contact on TV and other things. So whether it was the way he led behind the scenes, the communication aspects, there's a lot in the book that I think people and your listeners can engage with to judge for themselves whether they feel that it was effective or not. And look, uh, I even say at the end of the book, in the epilogue, that that was a significant reason I wrote the book. It wasn't just because of the period of time we live in right now, and I believe Americans need to have more openness and transparency into their government appropriately so much. You don't do something that's classified or release something that would be damaging. But you provide that behind the scenes look so people can say this is how the government's actually functioning, how the Department of Defense functioning. What do I think about this? What do I think about what you just asked? Was he effective? Was he ineffective? It's really not for me as one person to pass judgment on it. But I I do think I've left some breadcrumbs for guys like you and others and historians to look at and say, now we have a better idea of how to how to answer that question.
0: So I've got a question about the the Pentagon stuff with the I guess, military leadership, uh, the strain on civilians and all that. I'm a civilian. I'm, I'm not in any service, and I never have been. Um, and this this question is born from my own ignorance, admittedly. What, uh, I guess, what was so stressful for the civilians at the Pentagon having that kind of military leadership? Was it uh, longer hours? Was it uh, the quicker turnaround? I know you touched on it a little bit, but still reading the, the chapter, I wasn't totally clear on that
2: sure so there's probably a couple things one would be civilian control the military was discussed a lot the fact that because we had a fair you know military-centric front office and because in this case then two-star rear admiral craig fowler was the senior military assistant but it was run just like a ship you know mattis was definitely the service secretary out doing a lot of things you had the chief of staff a guy named kevin sweeney who was a retired once star admiral, but he kind of ran, you know, the office as the CEO. And then you had Rear Admiral Fowler, who is a senior military assistant, kind of basically took the role of his exo. So rather than being, I believe, from what I've learned from others, which is a traditional role of the senior military assistant, kind of serves as a conduit to the Joint Chiefs and to co- co- excuse me, combatant commanders, and then Sweeney's running the staff, they really ran it more like a ship. They were both surface warfare officers, and that's what they know and that's what they have experience with. So Sweeney... Well, so they were obviously we call, awesome. <laughs> so, so they were looking up and Sweeney was looking up and out, communicating with the other cabinet. Yeah, uh, not, not necessarily officials, but other cabinet uh, departments, other departments within the government. Fowler was working down and in, but that meant that by default, Fowler as a as a uniform two star was directing senior civilians what to do, and they took umbrage with that. Hmm. So that was a major point of friction because now you have, in a lot of cases, junior military individuals telling senior civilians what to do and how to do it Uh, to your other point about the urgency i don't think people really i've never seen anybody whether they were a public servant or military officer or military enlisted or officer who would push back on hey i need to stay a little bit longer or i need to be more responsive the danger was letting the urgency of the immediate need overrun the strategic long-term goals yeah so one of the examples i have in the book is just these there's a component within the pentagon and within the office of the secretary of defense it's called uh, osd policy it's run by a very senior civilian in this case it's currently john rude and so he runs the policy shop well these are experts you know like just like we've seen in the news recently with lieutenant colonel vindman who is a military member who runs ukraine for the white house well guess what we have someone who runs ukraine for us we have uh a deputy assistant secretary of defense laura cooper we have Katie Wilbarger, who's in policy, all these senior individuals and they have expertise in this area and they need to push information uphill. So if you get frantic phone calls from our front office constantly saying, forget all that. I need you to do this thing right now because Mattis just asked for it, drop everything else. You really fracture the lines of communication. And it means that we're getting things we're asking for. But I felt like during a lot of periods of time, we weren't asking the right questions. And because they were now being very reactive. They stopped pushing it up to us, so there's yeah. probably things we should have been aware of that we weren't.
0: That did clarify it. Thank you. Do you think that
1: had anything to do with Mattis's, um, uh, or, you know, his reputation, his aura, his, you know, his Saint Mattis Cass. and all this stuff? You know, was, was there? Because I know I know this to be true from my perspective. Of course, I'm 17 rungs down the ladder, but for my foxhole, there's a, almost a reverence for him when he was a four star general. Uh, come out of CENTCOM and and then uh, everybody was excited for him to be um, uh, confirmed as Secretary of Defense. Within his own staff, was there a certain reverence for his for him
2: personally that caused yes. that, that urgency? Well, well, sure. You always want to do the best job you can for your boss. Yeah. And I don't believe, and this is a tough statement to say because I don't want you to hear this as I'm lumping myself in as like some kind of superstar. I mean, that's not the case. But no, no, that's he, fine. he rallied he rallied people to his flag that he knew were proven performers and hard workers and yeah. who would bend over backwards. And and that's why we became this very small, very close, just kind of like there was like eight to maybe a dozen of us that were in on almost everything. And we were directing a lot of traffic throughout the Pentagon. Right. I mean, just like I described in a book uh, where he had a meeting with Senator, then Senator John McCain, and he needed a plus one. And, and rather than take his legislative affairs expert he took me yeah you guys so there's yeah yeah, there's just like you know so he he relied very heavily on us that meant that certainly he would get things on the timeline he wanted i mean there were hours there were days where i would spend 16 to 18 hours in the pentagon to get some to crash on something for him go home literally grab about four to five hours of sleep wake up shove some food down my gullet and get right back to work because you just had to do it uh it used to but it all was born for a great deal of respect for Secretary Mattis. And I, I appreciate what you guys said at the onset, which is that it came across loud and clear when you read the book. Oh, yeah. Not yeah, just sure responding that. to, not just responding to headlines that you've seen, but reading the book and you sit there and say, hey, you know, there's a lot of respect for Secretary Mattis because I oh. believe that was well earned. And I believe that he certainly, uh, the, the service he gave the country and he gave the president was, uh, was a real treat to watch for yeah. him. Yeah.
1: And you're, you're, you were writing from your perspective firsthand, and uh, you were very clear about that when, when you were talking about things that you witnessed personally, and then when you were talking about things that somebody else maybe told you, but you, you were simply being uh, forthright, and I thought that even tone was just impressive to, to read, and it, it made it enjoyable to read, and especially because I'm, as a staff officer, I mean, I served on, uh, and do serve on military staffs, so, <laughs> you know, almost like at some points I'm, I'm, I'm reading this like it was a drama, <laughs> uh, it, 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 it had a bit of a it. It, it did, but uh, so and I. And <clears throat> I'd actually want to ask about um a good point to, to turn on this wait, one. Wait, 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 oh wait. yeah, okay, go
0: ahead. Just uh, on the whole writing it like a drum thing. I, I do have a question. Just as far as uh you know the the different quotes in here. I mean, are these are they exact quotes? Like, do you did you have a way to to take that specific in notes or? Yeah, well, you had your notes, right? Or did, or was it like as you recall, and you're just putting it in there, just kind of make it more in a storytelling style.
2: No, I would say that most uh, one, I stand behind everything in the book. If I quote, it's because I felt very comfortable either recreating the scene or referring to materials I had on hand to make sure that they were accurate. There's, there is something I think it's important to share with your audience, right? Because you do, you cater to an audience who, like you said, maritime professionals, people who uh, very much are currently serving right now. And, Two lessons I learned as I walked through this process, one of which was, if you hold a TSSEI clearance, you have an obligation to submit your writings, whether it could be a magazine article or a book, to the Pentagon, so they get a chance to review it to ensure no classified information is inadvertently disclosed. That was something I learned at the end of last year, Hmm. uh, which was good to know, because I hadn't been aware (laughs) of it before. Good to know. And the second part of this, too, yeah, it's actually, yeah, you want to do that. Uh, the second thing, too, is just making sure that, like you said, like this whole compelling narrative aspect, um, if you take professional notes, like if you're in meetings and you're taking notes, then, yeah, I mean, I would either daily or at the worst, if we were running hard, you know, weekly, we had a staff sergeant who typically closed down the office and you would come by and, hey, sir, you know, what you got anything for me? And I'd hand him the burn bag and be like, oh, dude, hang on a second. And I'd rip out the pages of my professional notebook and you toss them in the burn bag to make yeah. sure that these notes, which were taken in classified settings, were destroyed. Now, there's nothing that precludes you. And in a lot of cases, I actually recommend that individuals keep a journal. I mean, it's it helps jog your memory. Once you write something down, of course, you tend to remember it. So when you think about the quotes in a book, it's not only that I take the notes real time, not only did I usually refer to them again to write material for the, for the secretary, but then also as I kept my own personal journal at home, as I would just recollect my thoughts, that's all material that I could go back to. And it made it very easy to write the book because, look, for a year and a half, my whole job was to study Menace. yeah, to observe him closely, to kind of get inside of his head, quite frankly, so that I could minimize the amount of time he had to spend, you know, giving feedback on a speech or on the national defense strategy stuff like that. And
0: of course, he was oh, a so big it it uh, and he was a big uh, supporter of, of keeping a journal. It seems by the by that closet full. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he he. Uh, there was a, one of the leading anecdotes in the book is when he brought us in
2: for our very first session with him. So it was it was me at the time. It was uh, actually my predecessor in the communications director role, a guy named Justin Michaela, also a former Navy guy. And then we had a civilian with us, uh, Bill Rivers, who's a terrific guy. He came from the Senate uh, younger, but he came in with us. So we're having our very first meeting with Mattis. We're in his personal office. I mean, you're just like, wow, this is incredible. I can't believe I'm here. And he shared with us, about how he had learned early on. He had he had gone down to San Francisco and uh, met up with a longshoreman who shared with him, basically write down every everything interesting you find uh, and it'll change your life. And so Mattis has done that for decades and he has these three uh, books, three binders in his in that closet when he was secretary. He still got them at his house now uh, called his Books of Wisdom. And it was like all these quotes, all these sayings, all these different things he had collected or emails that he had received that he had collected and kept, and he referred back to them. So, as a speechwriter, man, it was glorious. Like you had just years and years and years of notes and speeches and things you could refer back to to really help make sure that when you wrote one, that he sounded like himself. It wasn't just me putting words in his mouth.
1: Yeah, and that's that's really tough to do. I, uh, I'm not a speechwriter, but I do a little bit of that in my uh, my day job, and uh, I I empathize with you. Um, and you know, something else that uh, really resonated with me uh was your description and we talked about this a little bit how uh, how Mattis uh, worked his staff um you know you you said it uh pretty plainly and uh, you didn't say you know he didn't uh wear out i mean he he, he did kind of wear out his staff but uh, like you said you had a few uh high performers a small group of high performers um definitely didn't come across like he treated his staff unfairly no right. um but uh you know you have a quote in there this uh a joke he made you know you find your horse and ride them when they drop you shoot them you find another horse um right and i know that was a joke uh but you know i it resonated with me because it's that's that attitude um is not unique to mattis i mean i've i've worked for people like that i've seen it happen um you know you you know guys like him demand selfless sacrifice uh, he for example did not marry um so he's a little unique in that respect
0: um but it seems like he holds himself to the same standard
1: He does yeah so I'm not saying that in and of itself is bad, but this is what I'm getting to. And you write about this in the book. It gets very personal. You talk about how you'd elected not to take the uh, selection for nuclear power, which would have made you the commanding officer of an aircraft carrier. Uh, leading to that would have been three consecutive sea tours and a lot of time away from your family. And you ultimately made a family-based decision to to not take that, to not accept it. You were going for command of a uh, carrier air wing, which would have been your your preference and more time more more stability for your mm. family. Um, I empathize. Uh, I've had similar things happen to me in my career. I've made similar choices and I know the impact. <laughs> uh, it seems in this case you, you start a blog is what happens. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, you, blow, you you
1: develop multiple personalities. Uh, but for you you lost standing with Mattis. Um, you wrote about it and uh, you know I'm curious about that. You know it was was it his personal experience as far as always being a single man? that influenced his priorities for his staff and or do you think it's a broader in the military is it a broader cultural issue that we view family choices not taking the next hardest job in a negative light or or is it just not an issue at all i'm just curious what your thoughts on on that are
2: there's kind of a spectrum here uh, and that was a great question and a great lead into it because you do raise a couple questions uh one i don't think it's unique to secretary mattis in that i've had a lot of friends and even family members who have served and you typically hear a common refrain that with, without much exception, if you are on the path to greater responsibility, greater rank or significant command and you've declined, right? You, so you willingly, for whatever reason, family or otherwise, just personal preference, if you say no thanks, I've had lots of people tell me that it was like, you could just feel it right away. The oh, organization's yeah. outlook is like, we're not investing in you anymore. Hey, you're not one of us. You Because in some respects, since we're such a hierarchy, you're, the way i've heard it described to me is you're kind of rebuking your boss saying that the choice that they made in life their, their professional choice to stay in uh wasn't the right one because you've chosen to do something different and i personally i disagree with that i, I do too I, I had uh you know 200 plus sailors as a commanding officer in japan at the fighter squadron and i had tons of talented sailors who would do their minimum enlistment and they were the one they were the exact ones you wanted to keep and they would come yeah. to me and say hey skipper uh yeah, I'm honored you want me to stay and re-enlist, but I joined because I wanted to to have access to the post-9-11 GI Bill. I wanted to go to college. No one in my family's gone to college. I want to, this is my pathway to get it. I'm like, right on, man, because you had a plan. I just want to make sure you're taken care of. How can I write some letters for you? What can I do to help you out? And so I say that because that that was an area that I found personally disappointing, and I do share it in the book, which is simply, I was disappointed that when I, when I was in a situation based on my family's needs to turn down major command, in this case, command, uh, or the pipeline that would lead to command of an aircraft carrier that I understood the Navy's position, which is, look, we're not gonna make an exception for you. I've, I've seen that happen in the past and it usually backfires. People, uh, it, it doesn't play well with the masses. I understood that. And I, and I didn't want any special, dis- you know, a- any special decisions made on my behalf, yeah. but you would still hope that there's a pathway forward. I'd been asked to stay in the department and to lead at a at a more senior level as a civilian. And I thought, man, this is a great opportunity because like your point, you ride your horses until they drop and you shoot them and find another horse. We had, we had had no one in the office, especially a civilian, who'd come in, work for a year or two years, do great work and then succeed and go off and do something.
1: And, and what kind of message does that send? You know? You you, right. you want to right. be an office that that uh, does good things for people and then they succeed. You want them. That was what I was taught by my CEOs. You want your sailors to succeed. You do. I mean, everything you're doing is for them, and you want to see them go on to greater better things. You don't you don't trash like, them. It's also,
2: and I, and I don't want to say it in a way that sounds anything other than altruistic and awesome because I believe that's the way it should be, but. You, you typically, I've heard the saying throughout, I think I first heard it in Top Gun, you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. Yes. And if you're a high-powered leader, if you have a high-powered staff, if you are doing all these different things, look. I mean, people have reputations, both good and bad, and it's, it's a positive thing, like you just said. If you take care of your team, take care of your staff, the people who dedicate so much time to making you successful, if you say, look, uh, I need you to do these things, I know it's going to be tough, it's going to be a burden on you and your family, but at the end of the day, I've got your back. And Absolutely. I'm certainly not going to heart, I'm not going to hurt you. Now, I've got a great example. I had lunch with Secretary, former Secretary of the Navy, John Lehman, about a month ago. And I loved, unsolicited, he was just talking about his experience as Secretary. And he shared with me, he had collected his own high-powered staff. And he was told, because he extended them, right? He was a, he was a Secretary of the Navy for a long time under Reagan. And he extended these individuals. And he was told, if you do that, you're killing their career. Hmm. And he basically said, hey, Thank you for letting me know that I need them. They're pivotal to my operation. But he made sure when it was time for him to leave as Secretary of the Navy, he stayed for six more months in the role to ensure he placed everybody into their next better yeah. job. So he saved like a captain who became an admiral. He placed someone who became a more senior admiral and commanded the Pacific Fleet. And uh, to me, that was like a great example of, of what a leader should do. Yeah. Is be someone who says, you put, you, you just expended so much energy on my behalf and that meant a lot. And certainly, you're doing an organization's behalf as well. But I'm going to make sure you don't get hurt because you did that.
0: Well, I think there. I mean, I think uh, in the modern military is going to have to take some sort of steps to realize that having the standard like uh, my, my future and father-in-law, when he enlisted in the Marines, he was told this is not a job for a family man. If you, you know, like, don't you shouldn't be here if you want to have a family. You know. And uh, obviously, that's not really a realistic standard. So, at some point, there's got to be some sort of changes in the way that the career paths can move forward—not not special yeah. for one-offs, but for everybody,
2: you know. Yeah, I mean, well, I've got a real quick uh, pithy thing to share that I've always liked. <laughs> we like I heard pithy. it from. Yeah, I liked it from the. Uh, so, I was the executive officer for a phenomenal leader. His name's Dave Pollard. He's currently the executive officer for uh, the, the carrier, I believe it's the Ronald Reagan, right now in Japan, and. So I got to run behind him as his XO. And one of the things he would always tell sailors is work like you're staying in, but plan like you're getting out. And I think that that's a great mindset because, look, always do your best job. Give it everything you've got, but never lose sight of the fact that sometimes just by fate and timing, things can go sideways. And I've, I've lived that for a long time. And I think that's one of the things that maybe gave the appearance that I've seen some reporting and I know that that was a little bit of that whisper campaign that, oh, you know, Bus just went to Mattis' office so he could get out and write a book, which I think is preposterous. And I never once in a million years thought that. But because I was working like I was staying in, but planning like I'm getting out, it meant that when I was caught uh, off guard, when I was, you know, said, hey, we're not going to want you to take a more senior position, it was like, okay, well, then I've got to play the cards that I've been dealt. I'm going to go ahead and transition to the civilian sector. But I, I, you know, hey, I've already got a job lined up. Uh, friends and family approached me and said, "Dude, that was such a great experience. Why wouldn't you share that with others? Why wouldn't you provide those lessons learned?" And I think the speed at which I was able to do so is is what kind of created a little bit of that narrative. But I would I would say, regardless of any of that, always think about how things can go. Don't ever place, regardless of the leader, regardless of the situation, never put all your eggs in one basket. Always be thinking about, you know, if something if something were to go horribly wrong in your in your planned career path, what would you do about it? How yeah. would you set yourself yeah. up? I think you'll find you always have options that
1: way and you can always add value that's what I, I would tell my sailors you, you can always add value it just not might not be the way that uh, we all expect you to it mm. might not be the way like that, that. The, the career path is is laid out maybe you need to create your own career path Maybe just just redesign the game and whatever it is but you there can there always do one
0: quarterback on the field but there's a lot of other players that's right you just maybe, right.
1: maybe you end up being the coach you know yeah. uh, so um, Hey, we we only have you for a few more minutes. This has been awesome. This has been
0: fascinating. I yeah, think. we could so. probably talk a whole other uh, hour. Yeah, yeah.
1: For, for real. But uh, one thing that I uh, know Frank really wanted to bring up. So um, it's kind of a current event. This is right. a current event, and uh, you, we don't even know if you're going to know anything about it. But we'll figure. We'll throw it out there. See what your thoughts are.
0: So, uh, so a guy that used to to work in the White House, who's making news today, is uh, who's being identified as a whistleblower. Did you ever come across this guy, this Eric uh, Sierra Mella? Oh,
2: interesting! So this is uh, must be breaking news. This, they're saying this is the individual who's the whistleblower.
0: Yeah, so he was a CIA analyst. He was assigned to the White House. Uh, apparently, uh, as Real Clear Investigation says, it's uh, up in D.C. Mm. It's it's common knowledge that he was the early White House leaks, and that he is the whistleblower, and he used to work for Biden and stuff like that. And so, uh, did did you ever oh, meet him or know him or anything?
2: You know, that name doesn't sound familiar and I'll be honest with you, as silly as it sounds, I mean what, because I was working directly for Mattis, I typically interacted with a lot of the other principals or their immediate staff. Steven um, Stephen Miller. Stephen Miller's one from the White House, for example, or or two or three of the White House speechwriters, right? If we're working a presidential yeah. speech or you know, then you would work directly with your counterparts and Stephen Miller was mine at the White House or your you know, like Secretary General Stoltenberg from NATO, I'd be talking with like his communications director or that kind of stuff. Mm. So we did. We typically didn't get down too far into another organization's bureaucracy gotcha. because it just didn't seem appropriate. But uh, I, I will tell you, I'm I'm a little disheartened that it sounds like that person's been ousted, and especially when I when I did see early reporting that this was a individual who was in the CIA who was here from this period of time to this other period. I'm like that that narrows it down pretty quick.
0: Well, yeah. And and so
2: if that re- if that reporting is accurate, then I again, I mean, this is a federally protected. Space. It should be something that we shouldn't be trying to pierce that bubble. We should be protecting it because the last thing you want to do is dissuade people from highlighting things that might be actually dangerous to the
0: country. Well, the logic they gave in uh, releasing his name was that, uh, you know, one, he might not necessarily qualify under the whistleblower statute, but uh, two, he was working uh, for Biden on Ukrainian policy uh, during the time that Trump was discussing investigating Ukraine. So the guy who was part of what would have been the investigation, a guy that said, oh, he's trying to investigate it. So that's, that, they're, they're mm. kind of calling malfeasance on it.
2: Well, look, I mean, again, these are uh, in- incredibly deep political waters, and I can, sure. I've experienced this firsthand. I'm, I'm even seeing it right now. So there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes, a lot of ways that you want to, uh, whether you're, you know, I think a lot of us in the military strive to be very political, but whether you're on the left or right side of the aisle, yeah, you know, there's, there's a lot of information that gets put out to illuminate, I guess, for the people who follow that path, uh, what they want you to know and think. And mm-hmm. I think that the the best thing I've always liked, and that's why I love my tenure at Top Gun, that's why I've loved some of the high-performing organizations I've been a part of, is that you get away from the emotion. And it's like, let's go for fact. What do the rules and regulations say? What are we trying to achieve? What are the facts, even if they're unpleasant? And that's where I would love to have seen the allegation of impropriety for quick pro quo with with ukraine is okay yep let's get away from the political stuff and let's just get to what do we actually know for sure let's take a look at the great. actual transcript yeah right yeah. and then yeah. just present the facts to either congress or the
0: american public and we'll go from there. it never work. yeah never work.
1: well you right. got to use your you know frank, your, your rule of uh you know wait six months before reacting to anything that happens and <laughs> it's three weeks okay <laughs> wait three but, weeks you know wait wait that, problem is we can't do that with the, the 24-hour news cycle, but if you do that, it's, it's a fascinating... To, it's, it's
0: before making an emotional investment. <laughs> Wait three yeah. weeks before emotionally investing in it, whatever your opinion is. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it works, too. I mean, once it wears off, you're like, oh, that, that actually seems a lot clearer now. Yeah. So Okay. This was uh, uh, awesome. This was a great
0: uh, hour with you, bus uh, discussing the book. Um, and just as a reminder, the name of the book is Holding the Line Inside Trump's Pentagon with Secretary Manis. He is retired commander Guy Snodgrass. You can buy the book on Amazon. We suggest doing it. It's a good read. It uh, it's not yeah. uh, it's not dry like for people that uh, I don't know. It's not some dry biography history book or anything. No. It's a good read. And
1: if you are if you've ever been on a military staff or just any any staff within government, um, and if you're just a, a staff officer or a junior officer, if you're in the military, I recommend getting the book because it's just a fascinating insight into the life you've been living.
0: From, and where it might go. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: So, uh, all right. Hey, uh, any any uh, parting words for us, Bus?
2: No. Just I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate the podcast. Thanks for giving me the time today. Great chat with you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, no. Thank thanks to you. This is uh, this has been our pleasure, and we've really enjoyed it. So, we'll let you go. You you've probably got to go uh, talk to 14 different uh, cable news networks. So, uh, keep keep going. Enjoy it, and uh, while it lasts, like you said, it's fleeting. So, uh, in, enjoy it while you can. But. Um, all right, all right. I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna sign off uh, until next time guys keep it salty
0: hey one more thing from your commander-in-chief don't forget to follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or anywhere else you can get your podcasts. Also, go to SaltyHerald.com to find our newest merch store where you can get your Salty Shirt, or even better, the Sala... The Sala... The as the the, 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 Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu <laughs> alaikum. Uh, but, uh, inshallah, you will buy it. <laughs> um, <laughs> the Salty Millennial's Not Funny, or OK Boomer.
1: OK Boomer, <laughs> with a really cool graphic of a ballistic missile submarine. So, get it? Navy pun. Okay, boomer. Uh, you can get it in a mug, too. Okay. <laughs> Keep it salt. <solid. laughs>